We're going through a series called Along Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a quote taken from Nietzsche, uh, who did not mean it in any way, shape, or form to refer to God at all. Uh, And I kind of enjoy that he would be personally offended by it being used in this way. (laughs) Sorry, there's nothing he can say about it. Uh, But it was taken by Eugene Peterson to write a book about the Psalms of Ascent. And so we're going through the Psalms of Ascent. And these Psalms, we believe, formed a hymnal of sorts for pilgrims, travelers that would have gone to Jerusalem to worship at the annual festivals. We know of about three of them. Uh, There might have been some other times that they came as well. And so picture, as we're in Psalm 132 today, you can open that up, have it in front of you, Psalm 132. Picture you're one of those travelers. You left your village. And for a few days now, you've been traveling the long, dusty roads. You're tired You're hungry, you're thirsty. But you started up this incline to the city of Jerusalem. You've seen the city, you've seen the city gates, maybe even passed through the city gates. And we talked about some Psalms where they they made mention of this powerful city, this city on a hill, this strong fortress of a city, and how it reminded them of the strength of their God. But now they've passed through and and we're walking into the streets of Jerusalem. And there, in the distance, we see this. This is a picture, a recreation, as far as we know, of Solomon's temple. It would have been up on a high part in the city. The tops of the, the temple proper were gilded with gold. It was a beautiful sight. Just an absolutely marvelous picture. But I wonder... As they got closer, this beautiful shining temple on a hill and and, and the beauty of the courtyard and the surrounding areas, I, I imagine it was wonderful, but I wonder as you get closer, do you start to see a few cracks? Do you start to see some weeds maybe growing out of of the cracks in the ground? Do you start to see just a little bit of areas on the edges of the bricks that are starting to chip away with age? Do you start to see that this temple that was a symbol and a reminder of God's faithfulness is dependent upon humans, is dependent upon the priests and the workers in the temple to care for it, to keep it up. And after time, as we all do, it begins to show its age. And in fact, eventually, one day, it would be destroyed. An army would come through And this beautiful, shining beacon of the Lord's power, might, majesty, and presence among His people, the Israel, would be ripped apart, toppled to the ground, and trampled. Does our relationship with God ultimately depend upon our faithfulness? Does it, like the temple building itself, over time begin to crumble and erode Is it possible because it depends on our faithfulness for it to be completely overthrown and trampled on? Does our relationship with God ultimately depend on our faithfulness or God's faithfulness? So that's the lens with which we're going to look at Psalm 132. And let's start by looking at our faithfulness. I'll read, you can follow along with me, Psalm 132 verses 1 through, uh, we'll go through about 10. 10. 10. Whoa. 
Sorry, that's my fault. Okay, that's better. Note to self, cut that out of the recording. Okay, we're good. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. I'm reading from the NIV. Yours might be slightly different there. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place. You in the ark of your might, may your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. This psalm, and we just read a portion of it there and later in the psalm as well, there are two main portions that are taken directly out of previous scriptures. They are scriptures that were recited or or written, I suppose, first, at the dedication of the temple. They're recorded in two different places, but one of them is in First Chronicles, or Second Chronicles, excuse me, chapter six, where Solomon is praying at the dedication of the temple, and these exact words are used. Some have even said that it's possible Solomon wrote this psalm using the prayers from his uh, dedication at the temple, or at the very least that somebody wrote this psalm in reference to Solomon and the prayers at the dedication of the temple. So these are some things that are going on. And it starts with David's vow. And it talks about, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. Now, yours might have humility, meekness, righteousness. There's a lot of ways that that word has been uh, translated, translated. But it's basically in reference to David had a strong desire, a priority to build the temple. If you remember the story, David came from nothing. He was a poor shepherd boy, the youngest in his family. He had no right, no reason to rule over God's people. He had nothing in and of himself to commend himself as a king. I mean, he was a good guy, sure, but there were a lot of good guys. But he became who he was, and he was able to do what he did because God was faithful to him. But as David sat in his wonderful palace overlooking his immense kingdom, he realized that here he was with all of God's blessing, and yet God's house was still a humble tent. And so he made a vow. He decided that he wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build the temple. Could you turn the bass down on my voice? I don't know what's going on, but that's annoying. Good. Okay. That's better. Sorry about that. Does that distract you? Because it really distracts me when it happens. I can only go so far. So he has this desire. He wants to build a temple for the Lord. And look at verses 2 through 5. He says, I can't enjoy what God has given me. I can't enjoy what God has given me until I've built this house the Lord. Now, here's, this is interesting because it is what God has given him. This is not some selfish thing that David has built up over the years. David followed the Lord and the Lord blessed him. His reign, his palace, his kingdom, even his wealth was a blessing from God. Now, let's just be on this topic. That's how, how he will bless different people to bless David with wealth. All right. Later on, God would choose to bless a lot of his disciples with poverty and death. All right. 
So if we want to use a pattern of God's blessing in Scripture, I would say the greater pattern is the suffering, not the riches. So let's be careful just claiming a pattern and apply it to ourselves. But David had all these blessings, and, and it was wealth, it was riches, it was a palace. But look at his choice. He chooses to put as a priority the worship of God over the enjoyment of God's blessings. For David, what God gave him was secondary to who God is. That's important. Because we can so easily get wrapped up in all that God has given us, and we start serving that, we start worshiping that. And David had to step back and say, no, I want to worship the Lord. And so David makes this vow. He makes a promise. He is going to build a temple, a place for the Lord's presence to dwell. A great idea. If you know... Scripture a little bit, though. God came to him and said, no. God said, David, thanks. It's wonderful. But no, you're not the one to do this. Solomon was David's son, and Solomon built that temple that we just saw or something like it. But in that moment of telling David no, God made some amazing promises to David. And we're going to hear some of them echoed here in this psalm. Let's look at these verses, and let's look at the requests that the people mention in this prayer, starting in verse 6. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go dwelling place. This is a reference to the temple has been set up. The ark has been brought into the temple. The word went out throughout the country, and so they're coming together to worship. And here, the words in verses 7 through 10 come right out of this temple dedication, Solomon's prayer at the temple, or at the dedication of the temple. And let's look at the requests that the people make. And the first one is a request for God's presence. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Israel was the people of God. Not because Israel was who they were, but because God was with them. God dwelt among them. And so they're saying, God, we want you to live among us, just as you did in the tabernacle. Now come and live in this temple that we might worship you. They wanted the presence of God with them. They wanted righteous priests. Arise, Lord, come to your resting place, that you and the ark of your might let your Excuse me, verse 9, may your priests be clothed with your righteousness. In the Old Testament, there we go, the people could not come right into the presence of God. Though God dwelt among them, it's not like they could just show up, hey God, I'm here, this is great, let me tell you about my day. No, they were separated from God. And in the tabernacle and in the temple, there were these constant reminders of their separation from God. This thick veil, this curtain that hung between them and the very presence of God. These steps they had to go through, and really only the priests could go through. And they needed the priests to act on their behalf. Only the priests could go into the temple building and perform their duties. Only the high priest once a year could go into the very presence of God, and only under very strict circumstances and things that he had to do. And he had to take a sacrifice to pay for their sins. And the people knew, in order for somebody to serve in the presence of God, they had to be righteous, holy, perfect, sinless, or as close as was humanly possible. So it was their prayer. 
God, we want this relationship with you. Give us righteous priests to serve on our behalf. They talk about their joy. Verse 9 at the end, May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. Their times of coming to the temple to worship were times of great joy, remembering what God had done in the past, remembering what the people had done in the past, their forefathers. But they said, God, we want your presence, your righteousness to be our joy. And then finally in verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. This phrase, do not reject your anointed one, for us, and we'll talk about in a little bit what that means to us, but let's talk first about what it meant to them, because it's easy to put our reading on it. For them, it meant the son of the king. God, may the son of the king, or the king, may the king that God had chosen, which previous to this would have been David, and now was Solomon and his descendants, may that person, that anointed one, the one anointed to be king, may the kingdom continue. Because God had promised that David would always have a son on the throne. So they're saying, God, David was faithful. We were faithful in setting up the temple. We're calling down your blessing upon this that we might continue to be faithful. Continue to bless your anointed one. Now what if the psalm stopped here? Because that last phrase, for the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. It almost makes it conditional. It brings up the question, well, what if? What if God does reject the anointed one? What if we're not faithful enough? What if the temple falls as it did? What if the line of David failed, which in many ways it did? What happens when there wasn't a child or a descendant of David on the throne? Is our relationship with God conditional? Now, as they walked up to that temple and they thought about the history of David, David was an amazing figure. He was an amazing king. But let's face it, he wasn't perfect. This is one of the things I love about Scripture. There's no hero worship in Scripture. These great men and women of faith are presented, yes, as great men and women of faith, but also deeply flawed and sinful people. Imperfect. And so if this blessing this faithfulness in their relationship between them and God, if it depended upon who David was, well, that wasn't good enough. Because David wasn't perfect. If it depended upon their ongoing faithfulness throughout their history, let's face it, the Israelites weren't perfect either. There were a lot of flaws there. Deep, deep flaws. Well, maybe it was dependent upon Solomon's faithfulness. This is the first descendant of David to sit upon the throne. He was in many ways the, fulfill, the first fulfillment of this promise. Well, Solomon was pretty flawed too. Sure, he was the wisest guy in the whole world with proverbs and sayings and teachings. He seemed to know a lot of great facts, but he was a horrible husband and father. Horrible. Really messed up his family life and ultimately led a lot of the Israelites to worship other gods. So if their relationship with God depended upon their faithfulness, or even Solomon's faithfulness, David's faithfulness, they had big, big problems. If our relationship with God is conditional on our faithfulness, we have a bleak picture. We're always going to fail. So imagine you're walking to that temple 
as I said earlier. What if, as you're walking in there, you're wondering, is God still there? What if He left? What if we blew it? What if this wasn't good enough? What if I didn't have a good enough attitude along the road to worship Him? What if my sacrifice isn't good enough? What if I messed up sometime years ago or my forefather did it? I just don't even know. What if He's not there? What if He has rejected us? So here's the view from our faithfulness. And it is important to look at that. I don't want to just discount that and say, well, it doesn't matter how faithful you are. It does matter. But ultimately, our relationship with God is not dependent upon our faithfulness. Look at verses 11 through 18. And let's look at God's faithfulness. The Lord swore an oath to David. A sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I will teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. Look back at the beginning of the psalm. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore, David, swore an oath to the Lord. That's, that's a big deal. David made a promise to God. That's amazing. But then you look down to verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David. Do you see how the perspective has shifted? Now it's not about David's faithfulness. David's faithfulness is not what's on the line here. It's God's faithfulness. God swore an oath. God made a vow. Think about that for a second. That's easy to skip over. Oh, God made a vow. Why does God ever need to make a vow? There is no logical reason for God to promise us anything. God doesn't need us. He doesn't come to you and say, well, look, I'll do this if you will just do this because I really need you. Uh, Israelites, if you will keep up this temple and you'll take care of the land because I can't do it, so I need you to do this, so I'm going to make a promise. I'll uphold my part, you uphold yours. Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. God doesn't need us. God didn't need Adam and Eve to care for the garden because it was too much work for him. He made it all. He can care for it perfectly well. He doesn't make vows because he needs us. He doesn't make vows because he owes us anything. He didn't come to the Israelites and say, well, you know, you've been so faithful over these many years, so now you're setting up this temple. This is great, and I'm going to make this vow because you have just been so awesome. Because the Israelites weren't so awesome. And you and I are not so awesome. God didn't come and make a vow because he owed us anything. He didn't come and make a vow because we deserved it. God makes vows simply Because he chooses to. He makes vows because he loves us. And because it is an expression of his faithfulness. If you stick around for Sunday school at 10 o'clock, Dan Keenan, one of our elders, he's going to be talking about God's faithfulness. That's the attribute of God that we are studying today in Sunday school. I actually didn't know that 
when I prepared this sermon. Dan came to me. He's like, wait a minute. I need to know what you're talking about so we don't talk about the same thing. I said, no, no, you'll be fine. But I'm glad that he's going to be talking about God's faithfulness because there's so much more in Scripture to look at concerning the faithfulness of God to us. But here in this psalm, we see it around the temple and around this long walk, this long pilgrimage. And as they walked to the temple, as they came to the gates of Jerusalem, as they saw the temple in the distance, it was a constant reminder every time they made this pilgrimage. Our God has made a promise to us. A promise that depends on Him. Now, let's look at the promise that God has made. And I hope either you wrote down or you have an impeccable memory and you remember the four things that we looked at just a little bit ago that the people were requesting from God. Because God says in His promise... Verse 11, the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. He promises them an everlasting king. A kingdom without end. Now, sure, it is conditional in this case. It was conditional on each of David's descendants being faithful. Their experience of God's promise would change drastically based on their own faithfulness, but the promise would continue. And as we'll see in a moment, God ends up fulfilling his own promise based on his own faithfulness. So he promises them an everlasting king. He promises them, verses 13 through 14, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place or his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. He says, look, I'm promising you I will be with you. My presence will be with you. And his presence has an effect. Not only will God be with them, he will be reigning with them. King over them, he will sit enthroned. And his presence will bring blessings. He will provide for them. Their greatest needs will be provided by the fact that God himself is present with them. So he promises them an everlasting king. He promises his own presence. And he promises them righteous priests. Do you remember them asking for that? God, give us righteous priests. He says, I will clothe her priests with salvation. He says, I will be the one that make the priests righteous enough. I will save them from their sins so that they might stand and mediate on your behalf in my presence. I will give you the person or the people to go between God's people and my presence. I will give you righteous priests. And then at the end of verse 16, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. God promises them that because of his presence, they will have such joy that they will sing. And I love that we're introducing more songs here at Orchard. Good, deep, scriptural, biblical songs. Because we want to sing. We want to sing with joy. You know, some people are like, I'm not a singer. The Bible says that all of God's people are singers. Some are a little more on pitch and on key than others, and that's okay. But there is something biblical, scriptural, about our joy overflowing in song. 
And so God fulfills his promises through the joy of his people. But then there's one more, and it really goes back to the first promise about the everlasting king. He says this in verses 17 and 18, Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. That phrase, anointed one, which to them would have been heard as the son or the king that had been anointed by the prophet, the son of the king that had been chosen to rule, had been anointed, chosen by God to rule over them. Anointed one. And that's pretty good. The king that was anointed. The Hebrew term that's used here is, and I'm probably going to butcher this, Mashiach. We make that much easier to pronounce in English. Do you know how we pronounce it? Messiah. That's what Messiah means. It means anointed one. It's this word right here, Messiah. I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lampstand for my Messiah. Now, the Greeks had their own language for this. They, in the Greek copy or the translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, they use a different word here. I looked it up. It's Christos. We have an English sort of way of saying that. Do you know what that is? Christ. So here it's saying, I will clothe his enemies with shame. Or I'm sorry, here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my Christ. Christ is not a name for Jesus. Did you know that? It's not a name. It's not his last name. Hey, I'm Jesus. Last name Christ. Don't have a middle name. Christ is a title. It's this title right here. Anointed one, chosen by God to fulfill all of these promises. That's who Jesus is. He is the anointed one. I'm going to fly through some scriptures. I'm going to put them up here on the screen. But I want you to see how this psalm and so many other themes from the Old Testament point to Jesus Christ. So let's look through these very quickly. Oh, Messiah, Christ there, very quickly. Okay. Matthew 16, 15 and 16. Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say I am? And look at what Peter says. Jesus asks, but what about you? He asks, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You're the anointed one, Jesus. All those times in the Old Testament, it talked about the promised anointed one. That's you. Isn't that amazing? The fulfillment of God's promises. This is Peter's great com- confession of faith about Jesus Christ. Luke one thirty one. Jesus is the eternal king at his birth. Mary was promised, you will conceive and give birth to a son, but you are to call, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is a long time after the promise that was given to David. A long time after Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. God had been faithful for a long, long time. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. So he's fulfilled the promise of the eternal king, but what about his presence? Matthew 1, 22 through 23, one of the classic Christmas passages. All this took uh, took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, 
The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. My friends, memorize that verse. Emmanuel, which means God with us. I believe the theme of God being with us is one of the most important themes in all of Scripture. It saturates the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That our God wants to be and promises to be, makes a vow committing himself to be with us, based on no merit of our own. Jesus is Emmanuel, God's presence with us. So we're still walking today. We're still pilgrims along the way. We're still waiting for the final kingdom to come. We're still waiting for Christ to return. We're still walking along obedience in the same direction, trusting in Christ. And I love the way Hebrews puts this into perspective for us. Because we're not walking to Jerusalem, a crumbling, dusty city. We're not walking to a temple that's falling apart or has been overturned or can be overturned by any nation in this world. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is where we're walking. This is what has been made possible by Jesus' death on the cross. This is where our anointed one, our king, is leading us and where we will spend eternity. This theme of being priests in His presence is continued in 1 Peter 2, 4-5. As you come to Him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you are like living stones. You are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then if we skip down to verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonder, into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Isn't that amazing? These promises that were claimed by the people in the Old Testament, clung to by them, knowing they didn't deserve it, have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And we stand today in the difficulties of our day-to-day life as pilgrims, walking, trusting. But as we walk and trust God day in and day out, don't look to our faithfulness. Oh God, you have to bless me because man, I did my devotions this morning and I shared that post on Facebook. So you know, you got to bless me this morning. That's not where we look. We look to God's faithfulness. God's promises are absolutely confirmed by his past faithfulness all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. They are stated in promise after promise. Promises we don't have deserve, we don't deserve to have the promises fulfilled, but we don't even deserve to have the promise given. Who are we that God should promise us anything? And yet He does. They are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And one day, 
one day our walking is not going to be on a dusty road, but it's going to be on the streets of heaven. And the people we hear in the distance aren't going to be people just like us. They're going to be the angels singing glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord most high. We're going to say, do you hear it? Let's go and worship our God. And the king that we see will not be David, who took somebody else's wife to be his own and had the husband killed. It won't be Solomon, who could spout these great things of wisdom but had no clue how to be a dad. It will be Jesus Christ, the perfect Messiah, the perfect anointed one. The temple that the Jewish people walked to in the Old Testament was just a taste of that truth. Every time we come to gather as Christians, we are a taste of that truth. Our community of faith and others just like us around the world, we are a demonstration of the presence and the work of God, of Jesus Christ in this world. But let's make sure we're never looking at or pointing to our own faithfulness. Let's point other people to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, At the end of the day, all of our faithfulness, just as was the case with David, anything that we could claim that we have been faithful in, any goodness that we have, came from his faithfulness anyway. It's all about the immense, incredible faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is a history here a history that is somewhat removed from our present experience and is sometimes difficult to dig into. And yet I pray as we grow in an understanding of your word and the history of your dealing with your people, may we develop a deeper sense of gratitude for what you've done in that history. May we be more overwhelmed at your faithfulness in that history. May we stand in awe at the way you have knit that history together to lead to Jesus Christ, that he might fulfill those promises, those vows that you have made, that we might from the cross until today say that we stand in that promise. We demonstrate those promises. We invite others to participate, to be saved by Christ, that they might stand and say we are God's people. He has bound himself to us through no merit of our own, but only because of his anointed one. The Christ, Jesus, our Savior, Emmanuel, God who is with us. And Father, one day we will stand in your presence perfectly. And all of our misconceptions, personal ideas of who you are and how you should operate, all that will be wiped away and we will stand and worship you perfectly. And we will know in that moment it is through no benefit of our own It is through nothing that we can claim about ourselves. We will stand there in that moment and say, praise be to the Lamb who took my sin upon Himself and died in my place. Our King who reigns eternal. We pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.